There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, on Policy Forum Pod today, we find out the state of gender equality in the Asia-Pacific region. You know, there are real problems with gender equality at at even the formal legal level, let alone the sort of de facto levels of discrimination. Also, we look at how public policy can address those problems or make them worse. Economic policies that generate inequalities also increasingly generate violence against women. Hi, I'm Kelly Hayward and this is the latest episode of Policy Forum Pot. Globally, women make up just 22% of parliamentarians, and despite the fact that women generally outpace men in both secondary and higher education, unemployment rates disproportionately affect women worldwide. And women's employment is often insecure, whether that's part-time, informal or temporary. Today, as the APEC Women and the Economy Forum is underway, I'll be taking a look at the important issue of women's rights, particularly focusing on some of the obstacles preventing the economic empowerment of women in Asia. We'll be looking at where women's rights currently stands in the region, what countries are struggling to advance the economic integration of women, and also what countries are leading the way. I will also be looking at what impact women's rights has on cultural and societal identity. We have a couple of fascinating speakers here with us today. But before we get through to that, a quick reminder that we welcome your feedback on Policy Forum Pod. If you want to email us, we're at team at policyforum.net or you can connect with us on our social media channels. On Twitter, we're at at appspolicyforum and Facebook, Asia Pacific Policy Society. Now, let's get to the subject at hand. Helping me unpack some of these issues, we have Associate Professor Susan Harris-Rimmer, who is an Australian Research Council Future Fellow at Griffith Law School in Brisbane. Also, we have Professor Jackie True, an Australian Research Council Future Fellow from Monash University. Both Susan and Jackie have done extensive research and development of women's rights in the Asia-Pacific region. First up, and joining me over Skype, is Sue Harris-Rimmer. Sue's current research looks at whether women's rights are traded in when a state is in transition, and also how these transitions can impact gender equality. Sue, many thanks for joining us at Policy Forum Pod today. It's wonderful to be here. Women have and can play an important role in economic development, yet we're seeing more and more obstacles preventing the economic empowerment of women. This is particularly evident in the Asia-Pacific region, and it's actually a key focus of the APEC Women and the Economy Forum taking place this week in Peru. Sue, I wonder if you could start by just giving me a bit of an overview of what the state of affairs is on women's rights at the moment. The state of women's rights in our region is extremely diverse. 
So, and within countries as well as between countries. So it really depends whether you're in a rural or regional area as opposed to a capital mega city, whether you are uh, from an ethnic minority, whether you have a disability, what age you are, uh, and often your um, ethnic or religious status. Incredible diversity. And I think that the story is that Asia is not using the talent of its women as it could. And the reason you're getting so much uh, focus on this issue in places like APEC, ASEAN and the G20 uh, is that the size of the prize is very large if you can actually uh, tap the human capacity of half your population. Countries see that they would have an economic advantage so I wonder if for a second we could actually focus on your current research, which looks at whether women's rights are traded in periods when states are in transition, which is often periods after conflict or during conflict. I wonder if you could tell me how conflict affects women and what are the dangers for women's rights in these transitional moments? So I think the the way we often look at transitional periods is that they can be a period of a time of great opportunity for women's rights. It comes from our own feeling that after World War II, there was a flourishing in women's rights uh, because of greater participation in public space and public employment. But I, I feel that, in fact, uh, the status of women is often seen as a tradable commodity. So in Burma, you got during the election campaign, um, the Buddhist nationalists drafting legislation around the status of women, limiting their ability to marry a non-Buddhist national spacing of births, uh, registering of uh, interfaith marriages. And this was rushed through the parliament very fast. And it sent a message not only to the Rohingya uh, Muslim minority that's up in Rakhine State, but it also sent a message to women, I think, in Burma more generally, that their rights were, you know, uh, subject to bartering by the political system that did not include them in parliament. Uh, so I think, I think there's some real issues around how we feel about uh, uh, how women's rights are protected in Asia because we don't have the strong regional systems that we have in other places and we have the possibility for more conflict, both ethnic conflict within countries and also, you know, the brewing tension around the South China Sea. Paying attention to women's rights in this time, at this time and in this part of the world, the engine of economic growth for the world is really important. Are there actually any opportunities for economic empowerment for women in these transitional periods? I hope so, but we're not quite seeing the sort of sustained attention that is needed. In, in Myanmar, there's a lot of issues around land and rights to land, uh, but also natural resource management. And there are lots of issues that are preventing women from playing their part in economic life. In most economic governance institutions in Asia, as in, the, as in Australia, um, there's very little representation of women. So in central banks, treasury departments, finance departments. We also are getting a lot of issues around special economic zones and what they mean for women. So I'm not interested in women getting the lowest paid jobs in any particular economy. I'm interested in women having the opportunity to participate at all levels, uh, including at, at the governance level. And I'm conscious that we don't pay enough attention to women's economic rights in transitional periods. And they're so crucial for these developing 
countries where a huge amount of economic activity is taking place. Whose responsibility is it to to help these women in periods of transition to, like you say, not just get the lowing, lowest paid jobs or getting jobs at all, but actually being equal to men? Trying to make countries understand that their human capital is as important as perhaps their natural resources is a really important conversation within states. Uh, but I also think the international community has a, a very strong role to play, both with the aid program that is meant to focus on gender equality outcomes. Uh, and, you know, there's lots of arguments, you know, we're into microfinance, but what about macrofinance for women? You know, we, we just give women tiny loans and we never help them make that next step into the macroeconomic environment. Uh, and But also I think that with the opening up of a country like Burma, Myanmar, there are lots of international companies flooding into that state. So foreign direct investment has become a real issue and that foreign direct investment has to have some social regulation and understand the society in which it is investing. Um, so I think international companies have a great deal of responsibility for some of these outcomes and I think the international community has to be really cognizant that the opening of Myanmar is not just a chance for corporate exploitation that there's a if we want the peace there to be sustainable if we want the development to be sustainable there has to be some equal investment in women's rights some developed countries and western countries are already a little bit ahead in women's rights is there any country in particular that's that's really leading the way and can some of these more developing countries learn anything from them yes but i also think it works the other way around uh you know philippines has a lot to Australia for example and I think that the Philippines generally is definitely a leader in the region so as we've seen in Latin America some Latin American countries are outstripping Western countries when it comes to female labour participation rates and rates of women in um, senior positions in government for example Russia has the highest levels of women in government Turkey has the most female entrepreneurs you know the, the the gender issues are very often linked to cultural practices which are very diverse Asia has a strong mercantile tradition. I think you can make that generalisation where whole families, you know, it's just normal for everybody to be engaged in commerce of some kind. Uh, so there is this idea that countries like China have very high female labour participation mm -hmm. rates, for example, whereas Japan and Korea do not, even though they have higher GDP per capita. They have real problems in uh, women, supporting women in, in uh, employment. So... It's quite, it's quite a mixed bag. I mean, generally, obviously, in this area, Sweden always comes out pretty well. Um, and in its uh, feminist foreign policy, I have seen the difference that it's made to their, their interventions in countries like Burma, Myanmar, and Afghanistan, in East Timor. Uh, but I think, generally speaking, most developed countries have understood the business case if not the women, if not the human rights case, they have understood the business case. Uh, I don't think that gets you all of the way there. I think the kind of the economic empowerment arguments only get you half the way there, and you need a deeper engagement with women's rights and status in a society, their active citizenship in a society. But I do think that most of the international organisations, like the World Bank, uh, have accepted the business case for women's uh, participation in employment, in particular. And the G20, for example, when it's got involved in these issues in, in gender and growth, it is really focused on female labour participation and, and narrowing the gap. So I think 
that area is one. What we want is the deeper engagement with women's rights and we want a deeper understanding of all women's, you know, so understanding the diversity of women within a society. So women from ethnic minorities in regional areas with a disability of a different ethnicity, migrant status, they're not necessarily going to benefit from some of these macro growth initiatives. Moving back on to your area of research in Myanmar, in the next five years, do you see some of these changes happening or do you think there's a lot more struggles ahead? I get told all the time, well, women's rights are doing well in Burma because look at the power of Aung San Suu Kyi. A lot of her power, as has a lot of Asian leaders, has been derived from her family status. You know, she is the the daughter of the general um, who gave Burma its independence. A lot of her leadership is derived from familial relationships. So we're thinking about Indira Gandhi, Priya Kino, uh, and she has not necessarily promoted women uh, in her own cabinet, in her own parliament, and there are still very small numbers in the Burmese parliament. Uh, there's still enormous difference between um, organised women's organisations in Yangon and the rest of the country. And, of course, we know things are very bad for women, uh, all women in Rakhine State, which has some of the lowest development indicators. And the country is not at peace. There is all kinds of ethnic conflict all around the border region. So I'm nervous, to be honest, about the future of Burma. I was very, very excited by the vote and the election outcomes. It seemed to me that some of these gains are irreversible. But we don't know. Um, so I, I'm wary, warily optimistic. I think my my plea to people when considering gender equality issues in Asia is to really keep their eyes open for the opportunity but also to value some of the differences we see around the region. We don't want to lose the cultural richness of the region and all the diversity of the region, but we do want to make sure that that cultural diversity doesn't result in people's lives being constrained um, from having any capacity to exercise citizenship or or engage in public life and to be self-sufficient and autonomous. You know, we are seeing some real real gender wars around the region. We're seeing a real crackdown on people identify as queer in Indonesia, for example. You know, we're still, still wrangling over issues like divorce in countries like Japan. You know, there are real problems with gender equality at at even the formal legal level, let alone the sort of de facto levels of discrimination. And we see some extraordinary levels of violence against women in, you know, many countries in Asia, but South Asia and the Pacific, it almost takes your breath away. PNG, Solomons, India, Bangladesh, Nepal. Uh, I suppose I want people to think about the richness of the region and the opportunities for the region for investment in gender equality. Very interesting stuff. Thank you, Sue, for joining us on Policy Forum Pod today. Some fascinating insights there. Also, don't forget, you can keep up to date with all of our podcasts by subscribing to iTunes, or you can pop on over to policyforum.net and click on the subscribe button. That way you'll get an email and you won't miss another pod. So, we've heard about the obstacles facing women in transitional states such as Myanmar and about what role the international community should be playing. But what about women in the labour market? 
how has that changed over time? And what kind of barriers are there to greater female participation? Joining me to look at some of those issues is Professor Jackie True. Jackie, welcome to Policy Forum Pod. Thanks, Kelly. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hey, I'm happy to, happy to talk about women's economic empowerment. So the World Bank has found that 155 countries have at least one law that limits women's opportunities and 100 states put restrictions on the type of jobs that women can actually do. Um, Jackie, firstly, could you explain exactly what women's economic empowerment means and why that's actually important in our world? First of all, I mean, I think um, women's economic empowerment refers to... um, the opportunities and the capacities for women to um, participate economically and receive an income or return for that activity and to be able to to kind of access resources and basic rights to social security, to employment, to non-discrimination and so on in order to kind of really um, fulfill the the talents and uh, potentials that, that women have not only as workers um, and employees, but also as entrepreneurs and leaders. In your book, The Political Economy of Violence Against Women, you say that nowhere in the world do women share equal social and economic rights with men. What kind of impact do you think this has on the women's role in society? Yeah, that's unfortunately true and um, obviously corroborated by that annual analysis that the World Bank does on all the forms of discrimination uh, against women in in laws that pertain to the economy, but also um, in terms of women not being being able to share the the same rights that men have in terms of access to resources, things like credit, things like networks and knowledge and know-how, and that's not referring to formal education, as well as access to, you know, healthcare, food, housing, all of those kind of things that we take for granted. Some of your research um, focuses on violence against women. And I wonder if you could create the connection for us between economic empowerment and violence against women. There is a very complex process going on in the world as as a result of global economic integration, which has expanded the economic opportunities for women in particular. Um, And you see a considerable rise in women's employment, especially in developed countries from the 1980s. Something like in, in Australia, for example, even with very high part-time employment rates, we can see something like a 25% increase over 25 years in women's um, uh, participation in the formal labour market. So a massive e- expansion um, of the labour market based on women's participation. But you can also see this kind of happening globally. And at the same time, you know, the glo- with global integration, that you know, there's much more competition for labour uh, and, and many... Uh, countries and um, 
sectors are, are really competing for you know for the best employees, but often on on the cost of that labour. So, how cheap it is, how low cost it is, um, and and here, I mean, this is part of the dynamic. Obviously, you know, women's labour has been devalued historically because it's been unpaid or in the informal economy. So when it moves into the formal economy, it's it's still devalued and 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 and, able, and attracting a, a lower price. Um, and in some context, in a competitive, competitive global environment, this has also meant that men have lost some of their previous entitlements to employment. And certainly it, it means that in households where you have, you know, you know w- women in, in, in formal employment, you know, there's a, there's a kind of a, a challenge to or a shift from a kind of a male breadwinner model, you know, where men were head of the household the income in and therefore they got to make all the decisions um, and were dominant in that role. And what we're seeing, I think, is a kind of a complex relationship and it is across global regions where um, the inequalities generated by greater global competition often affecting disproportionately some you know, particular groups and some groups of men facing unemployment um, and, and, and or downgrading of their employment, you know, kind of uh, react to that by by acting acting out their frustrations on women and girls, including family members. And so it's not surprising that you see and you can kind of see it in, um, in all countries, um, but you can, can also see it in those countries where you have kind of globalised sectors, increases... Heightened, heightened domestic and sexual violence, um, both both within the household and and within the broader public sphere. So things like you know egregious kind of gang rapes, which we've seen in Asia and in India and in Indonesia. Um, you know, I mean, how do we explain this? And often it is um, you see a kind of a disjuncture between young men um, who are kind of threatened by the rising social and economic status of, of women, um, especially in the context of urbanisation. There you might say that economic policies that generate inequalities also increasingly generate violence against women. Do you think that the change lies in, not in, I guess, policies or politics, but more in a societal and cultural change? Well, I mean, I think I think all of these uh, economy, polity, society, and culture are all interconnected. And the problem is, is that we often try to tackle the problem of gender inequality or gender discrimination in only one of those sectors, right? So we think if we change the law and we criminalise domestic violence, then somehow violence will no longer be a barrier for women to access the labour market or you know to access. Uh, employment or political representation, um, but in fact, if we yeah, if, if we don't address some of the underlying conditions that lead to that violence, so you know that the, the um, generalised feeling of um, poverty and inequality um, and lack of access to institutions, lack of voice, then then we're not going to be able to introduce uh, address that problem of violence. At the same time, and we, we can be we could be very focused on gender equality in education, and and that was the focus of the Millennium Development Goals, focused on achieving parity in secondary education for for boys and girls. But if we're not focused on you know what's the return to that education, what's the pathway from education into employment, then we're not going you know and and in and in the the uh, private sector. We're not going to see gains to gender equality. And that's what we've seen in, in Asia is that we have massive discrimination by businesses and in the labour market 
um, which is preventing um, societies, governments from really realizing the returns to women's education in particular. So we can take in and then the same thing. I mean, we could focus on increasing women's participation in, in politics and legislatures and we could implement a gender quota. But if we actually have a society that doesn't respect women as leaders or as decision makers, then you know that 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 they're not going to be legitimately able to uh, to advance any agendas in those positions, and I think there. I mean, I think if we speak again about Asia Pacific, I mean, you're not actually going to be able to to kind of sustain um, women's leadership without significant economic resources to run election campaigns and so on and so forth. If we bring all these these pillars together, these society, politics, policy, all the things that can change a society, what would you say would be the priority areas of intervention? Good question. Um, and of course, and everybody wants to know where where can we um, start? Um, what's the the lever today? And I do think that that um, a, a really important focus should be on women's economic empowerment. But it should be economic empowerment that really ensures that diverse groups of women uh, enjoy basic social and economic rights. So that means that we would have to be um, sure about, you know, the social protection, the social security for women workers, whether they're domestic workers, you know, working in the entertainment industry or whether they're working in factories or whether they're working, um, you know, in call centres or in more professional employment. And I think part of those social and economic rights has to be addressing the issue of social reproduction. So who cares for the children? Who cares for the elderly? Who cares for the community? All of that work that women have been doing in those societies and in the informal economy without much recognition and certainly without remuneration. So we do need, you know, we, we need to see significant focus on, on, on removing, not only removing the barriers to women's employment, but actually really looking at all of the economic activity that women are already doing in the household and community um, and actually providing for that through, you know, things like state-funded childcare. So I think that's really crucial and I also think addressing violence against women is seriously important. I think it's seriously important in the Asia Pacific region because we do not have any regional framework or agreement to address violence against women. So there, there's a sense that it's a really important issue and that, that it is actually affecting the prosperity and the social inclusion um, of all societies. But we don't actually have a kind of a binding uh, framework that really enables states to kind of uh, cooperate and, and address not, not simply domestic violence, but, but a whole range of forms of violence, which also would include economic violence. Um, so the ways in which men prevent women's access to assets. And, and to employment. And, and I think that, that um, we're starting to see some of that focus. I mean, you know, last year, for example, China passing a, a law against domestic violence. And, and here it was really um, salient that they actually provided uh, for women who, who uh, face um, violence that so they're able to stay in their own home and that it's the, the perpetrator who must leave the home uh, and that's really significant given that most property is is male owned in china 
Well, one of the really interesting things that Susan Harris-Rimmer said in our interview earlier today was that it was really important to progress women's rights, but without actually losing cultural identity and societal identity. And I wondered what some of your thoughts were on that. You know, if we, if we look at the kind of transformations that are happening, happening worldwide, we see massive cultural transformations. Cultures are not, are not fixed, static kind of things. They're, they're dynamic and they're always changing and modifying in, in response to a, a range of different influences, um, which are now today globalized. So we can see the Im- impact of global culture, popular culture, in Asia, for example, and it's sort of the whole global culture of consumption being also very much, you know, a part of transforming local and national cultures there. And of course, you know, gender and sexuality politics plays a key role. So I, I, I don't, I don't, I mean, I think it's possible to kind of um, have local, lo, lo, local meanings and local movements and discourses that support gender equality and find find meaningful ways to celebrate the gender equality that is a part of the tradition or history of that society. And actually, I mean, I have to give the example of Indonesia. I mean, I think we can see some amazing work being done in Indonesia by Islamic scholars who are reinterpreting texts from a feminist perspective and really showing how Islam respects the equality of men and women. So gender equality can and in fact does exist within already existing cultural and societal norms. Exactly. I, I, I think that's absolutely right. And it's and and I guess the dynamic of women's economic empowerment means that there is a far greater chance for those perhaps uh, less visible societal norms to kind of come to the surface and be celebrated, and and there are and, and the, one of the real benefits of global integration, and the flow of ideas, consumption and markets, is that with that comes an opportunity to have that kind of cultural interchange, and that discussion and that debate, um, and so um, there's an opportunity to kind of rethink and reshape uh, indigenous traditions in, in relation to, to traditions in other societies. And I, I've seen that actually throughout my research career, looking at, for example, the role of um, women's magazines, for example. How they, you know, they may be seen, some of the magazines that we would, we would now, you know, consider, you know, very down market in a way. In can, can be really um, important sites for the discussion of uh, new gender norms. You know, whilst they might also be trying to sell beauty products, they may also be able to generate discussions um, with these kind of new middle classes um, and consumer publics in, uh, in Asian societies. Well, you clearly have a lot of passion in this area and it's been really great to talk to you. Thank you very much for taking that time to speak with us today. You're very welcome. Thank you. Many thanks to Jackie for her time there. So we've heard about how post-conflict environments can impact the progression on gender equality. And we've also looked at the barriers facing women in the labor market, as well as identifying some of the key priority areas necessary to, to unblock these constraints. Some fascinating insights there. And I really do hope that everyone enjoyed listening to them. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. And if you liked what you heard, we would really appreciate your review on iTunes. It really helps us get the word out. 
Don't forget, you can keep up to date with all of our latest policy discussion, debate and analysis at policyforum.net. You can also connect with us on social media. On Twitter, you'll find us at at Apps Policy Forum and on Facebook at Asia Pacific Policy Society. See you in two weeks for the next Policy Forum pod. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.